Support for Seeking a Scientist comes from the Linda Hall Library, presenting Chain to the Sky, the Science of Birds Past and Future. This free Linda Hall Library exhibition is open to the public through July 13, 2024. Learn more at lindahall.org. Have you ever seen the movie Waterworld? It's a cult classic that takes place in the year 2500. The ice caps have melted and everything is submerged in water. There's no Space Needle, no Eiffel Tower, no pyramids, no Mount Kilimanjaro. Well, I mean, the main reason I watched it because Kevin Costner was in it. He was trying to tell something, I think, important about how the world could change. It's definitely silly, but underrated. And the, the movie opens with the iconic universal uh, spinning globe. The ominous voiceover comes on and... The temperatures climbed. The vast fields of ice at its poles melted. And the oceans rose. Centuries later, few people remain on this planet once called Earth. But at the time, sea level rise and climate change were not as commonly talked about as they are now and that's like a thing that's happening so it was ahead of its time in that sense of like an environmentally based you know dystopian movie in this place they know only as water world to survive in water world people live on these floating structures but they spend a lot of time in boats and in the water too kevin costner's character known as the Mariner, has grown gills, making him quite the swimmer. During the battle scenes, he can just hang out underwater and drown the unsuspecting gillless humans. And the battles in this movie, they are outstanding. Imagine jet skis, water skis, and flying anchors, all with a little 90s flair, and you'll get the picture. The late Dennis Hopper was great as pirate leader antagonist Deacon. But the real bad guy? Climate change. Arguably humanity's biggest boogeyman. On one hand, Waterworld has been called climate fiction, but many also give it credit for being ahead of its time and unveiling what a future impacted by climate change could look like. Currently, 71% of our planet is covered with water. But three to four billion years ago, the Earth was supposedly completely submerged in water. That's according to a study out of Harvard. Back then, there was almost twice as much water in our oceans, and all of our continents were underwater, including Mount Everest. So, if it's happened before, could it happen again? And how does climate change fit into all of this? From the Sowers Institute for Medical Research and KCUR Studios in Kansas City, this is Seeking a Scientist, a podcast where science fiction meets reality. I'm Dr. Kate Bieberdorf, aka Kate the Chemist, and in this episode, we're seeking a scientist to help us prepare for a floodier future. There's been a flood at Prestige Crest, and you're seeing live images of New York Noah's Ark caught in the storm. Every coastal city, every island, gone. We gotta go. Water being pulled out like that's a tsunami. We gotta get out of the bay now. In case you haven't heard, sea levels are rising, land is sinking, and storms are getting worse. A lot of the East Coast and Gulf Coast communities in particular have had 
really high rates of relative sea level rise. The future is here. How many times have we heard people say, oh, you know, I've been in this house forever, it's never flooded. The idea of an Earth submerged in water may sound far-fetched, but is it? Are we inching closer to our very own version of a water world? Do you remember learning about the water cycle as a kid? Precipitation, like snow or rain, falls from the sky, and as soon as it hits land, it runs as fast as Speedy Gonzales to the nearest river, lake, or ocean. Wide pore soils help this process along because they easily absorb rain, and after some filtration, the water fills our aquifers, which store groundwater. Flooding happens when the rain hits small pore soils, or worse, concrete, because they can't absorb the water. And one kind of flooding in particular has been making waves. <laughs> Along the coast of the United States, citizens have been reporting something that is just plain creepy. On bright sunny days, water is oozing out of the storm drains, flooding the streets and completely shutting down cities without a cloud in the sky. So apparently this like never happens. The tide got so big, it went to the parking lot. Like, I'm almost like knee deep. This freaky phenomenon is called high tide flooding, also known as sunny day flooding, king tide flooding, or nuisance flooding. It's still coming over into the parking lot. Good thing I upgraded to the Jeep. This type of flooding can occur in these coastal communities whenever we have a high tide, which is caused by the moon. The moon's gravitational pull on the Earth causes the ocean to bulge toward the moon. So, as the Earth rotates, the section of the ocean being pulled toward the moon is the high tide. On the beach, we can easily see this when the water moves far up onto the sand and drenches the unsuspecting tourists that put their towels too close to the water. Locals, of course, know that high tide is completely normal and only lasts for a short time before water recedes back off the beach. The ultimate culprit of sunny day flooding is the same villain from Waterworld, climate change. It's no secret that our planet is changing. The last decade was the hottest on record. And as we continue to add more people, and these people continue to burn fossil fuels, the Earth keeps getting warmer and this directly affects how much water is in the ocean. How are these two things related? It's a bit of an explanation, so hang with me here. On Earth, we receive the energy from the sun in the form of infrared, visible, and ultraviolet light. And then we either absorb the energy, plants use it to convert carbon dioxide to oxygen, or we reflect the light back into outer space. Before the Industrial Revolution, we had what is called the greenhouse effect. 80% of the reflected radiation was trapped by our atmosphere, by our clouds and greenhouse gases, and used to keep our planet nice and cozy. But during the Industrial Revolution, we started to burn coal and that put more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. This created the enhanced greenhouse effect and currently more than 80% of this energy is trapped on Earth. It's causing the planet to, for lack of a better word, sweat. As the concentrations of greenhouse gases increase in our atmosphere, the Earth's core temperature starts to rise. This warms up ocean water, melting glaciers and sheets of oceanic ice, which, you guessed it, contributes to sea level rise. When we couple the high tides we talked about earlier with more water in the ocean, 
We have a problem of too much H2O and no place for it to go. This, my friends, is sunny day flooding. I mean, can you imagine just going about your day and seeing water appear out of seemingly nowhere? But these stormwater systems that we lay in the ground are now acting as conduits for water to sort of backflow and come up through the systems and spill out onto the streets. William Sweet is an oceanographer for NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. They were meant to have downhill gradient when it rained and it would just clear the water. But that's, not, that's still the case, but it's becoming less and less of the case. Well, first, we got to recognize the problem. So sea level rise is no longer the thought of you're at the beach and it's nice and sunny and there's sand and water's coming up higher than normal. People living in coastal cities like Boston, Massachusetts, Charleston, South Carolina, Miami, Florida, and Galveston, Texas, all experience sunny day flooding with some regularity. A lot of the East Coast and Gulf Coast communities in particular have had really high rates of relative sea level rise. The land is sinking in these areas as well as ocean rising. Now, each coastal city is different. Miami usually experiences three to seven days of sunny day flooding annually. Boston has been known to have 22 water world-like days each year. Guys, the, the, the tide is coming. Come on, we gotta get out of here, What? And Eagle Point, located in Galveston Bay, Texas, just set the record for 64 days of sunny day flooding in one year. In the past 20 years, the rate of sunny day flooding has doubled. Compared to the year 2000, it's increased 400% on the East Coast, 1,100% on the Gulf Coast, and the West Coast is next. A new study published in Nature Science Journal predicts that by 2050, La Jolla, California, and Honolulu, Hawaii will catch up with Boston. All three cities are expected to have about 60 days of sunny day flooding every year. That's two months of surprise flooding in the middle of streets, near homes, every year. So, William, have you ever seen the movie Waterworld? Oh, big fan. It was by far one of the longest movies I've ever seen. And it was what I thought was pretty fascinating. Yes, it, it made us think, right? There are these cities underwater. Boy, look at them. Sure. The theoretical idea of all of this is enthralling. But dealing with an excessive amount of water on a weekly basis sounds like a nightmare to me. And speaking of watery inconveniences, while the East Coast and Gulf Coast are coping with sunny day flooding... The West Coast is dealing with an equally bizarre phenomenon. Rivers of water in the sky. Scientists call them atmospheric rivers, but they are basically flying water snakes. These rivers occur when water vapor, water in the gas phase, clump together in the air to form long tubes of moisture that are about 250 to 375 miles wide on average. One of the most notorious atmospheric rivers is called the Pineapple Express. Pineapple Express. Pineapple Express. Yes, it's this thing like El Nino, this airflow that comes from Hawaii and Canada, and it gets actually very scientific. I won't go into it right now. I'm in. No, but really, the Sky River earned its nickname because it brings moisture from Hawaii all the way to the western coast of the United States. When the Pineapple Express hits the mountains on the west coast, the water vapor rises up over the mountains and then rapidly cools to release a downpour of rain on the residents of Washington, Oregon, and California. And if it's really cold, they get a blizzard instead of a thunderstorm. 
Back in January 2022, the state of Washington had disastrous flooding after an atmospheric river dumped three to six inches of rain on the state. In some areas, rivers crested at 18 feet, and it was so scary that the National Guard was activated to help evacuate citizens. But that was nothing compared to the flooding in December 2010, when a network of atmospheric rivers dumped 10 to 26 inches of rain on the entire West Coast, including Arizona, Nevada, and Utah. They had to use bulldozers to extract creek goers and helicopters to save hikers trapped in canyons. I mean, there's only so much storm drains can do to pull water off the streets and divert it to the closest body of water, especially when that much rain is unusual for the area. These atmospheric rivers were particularly dangerous because they showed up after summer wildfires that had covered the ground in ash, kind of like a tarp. So instead of the soil absorbing the water, the excess water combined with the ash to generate menacing mudslides. The mud-filled homes, buried cars, and collapsed bridges. Just this past March, mudslides in Central California knocked out a levee and power for thousands of people. Living anywhere but the coast may seem like some sort of personal solution to avoiding all this water. But just because you're in a landlocked city does not mean you're in the clear. Support for Seeking a Scientist comes from Science City, powered by Burns & McDonald, inviting families to put down their screens and pick up the fun at this Kansas City hands-on love of learning destination while exploring the indoor and outdoor spaces. Tickets at ScienceCity.com. Seeking a Scientist is made possible with support from the Stowers Institute for Medical Research, where scientists work to accelerate our understanding of human health and disease. More information about the Stowers Institute is online at StowersInstitute.org. At this point, flooding is our most frequent and most expensive disaster. In April 2023 alone, flash floods hit landlocked states across the country. Minnesota... Kansas, Utah, Tennessee, Colorado, and this much flooding takes a toll on the people that live there. Over the last decade, the United States lost an average of 110 people to flooding each year. In 2015, as many as 189 people died. Most flooding-related deaths involve people intentionally walking or driving into floodwaters. It's so bad here in Texas that our billboards flash, turn around, don't drown, whenever there's a bad storm. At the moment, we have flooding in most parts of the island. And lower Manhattan, we've been told, is virtually inaccessible. We've got traffic snarl-ups because the electricity is now out. Some of these deaths include people that were trying to escape torrential downpours and just didn't make it to their destinations fast enough. Flash flooding can happen at any city, at any time. These floods are caused by heavy storms and a surplus of stormwater. The rushing water can knock people down, carry away cars, tear out trees, and destroy buildings. So storm water would be water that is sort of instantaneous, more usually from rain. We think of storm water as being, you know, rainfall, and it's on your streets, it's flowing, maybe it's in your yard, maybe the, the rivers come up. And William Sweet says that storm water lingers. It's kind of like that one guest that just stays well after the dinner party is over, watching you blow out candles and load the dishwasher. And unfortunately, 
thanks to climate change, flash floods are now a common occurrence. Why? Because when we mix higher ocean temperatures with more water in our oceans, we start to see a lot of evaporation. And more water in the atmosphere at warmer temperatures creates the perfect combination for an intense rainstorm, tornado, or hurricane. It's usually the types of water that occur during storms. Compared to storm surge, which I tend to think more as being an atmospheric or wind-forced response from, let's say, a, a tropical storm or a nor'easter that pushes water from the ocean up onto land. Perhaps the most large-scale and tragic example of this in recent memory was Hurricane Katrina, which happened back in August of 2005. This Category 5 hurricane caused nearly 1,400 fatalities. And most of the deaths were attributed to water rushing over flood walls and levees in New Orleans. 80% of the community was flooded with up to 15 feet of water for weeks afterwards. Some people were stuck in their roofs or in attics, unable to call for help because of the massive power outages. And those that were able to escape didn't know what they were coming back to. I lost my house. I lost my library. and I pretty much had every book that I'd ever had. This is John Lopez, coastal scientist and lifelong Louisianan. Most people, I think, uh, down here have been through the drill. We evacuated in time, and that wasn't an issue. We, we packed up to be away for three days, but we didn't evacuate planning that the house would be gone. Some people say, you know, yeah, you should take your family pictures, you know, and, and things that you can't replace. That's, that's another level of evacuation that and you have to think about. It's that kind of threat. John knows the statistics. In Louisiana, on average, every 100 minutes, a little over an acre, the size of a football field, is converted to open water. Uh, so when we say land loss, it is an area that was had emergent vegetation, grasses and marsh, maybe cypress trees, and now it's open water. And, and, and when we say open water, without that vegetation, that water gets deeper and deeper pretty quickly. So... It's, it's that problem of more and more water in our coast. John says whether we like it or not, the water is coming and Louisiana is slipping away at an alarming rate. You know, my dad would take us fishing to areas in Louisiana uh, on the lower coast and uh, some of those areas that he would take us, the land no longer exists. And that's not unusual. Anyone down, down here has a story like that, you know, there's been so much loss. There's a uh, certainly a professional, but also a, a personal side to, to my interest in it. Okay, this is not like a shopping center-sized problem. This, this is like hundreds of miles of coast. A few weeks after Katrina, Hurricane Rita hit the same area, destroying 4,500 more homes and killing 120 more people. John and his wife eventually returned to their land and rebuilt their house with one big difference. This time, he elevated it 15 feet off the ground to reduce the chance of losing their home to water again. And there's another reason to raise homes on the coast. Due to the extraction of oil and gas, the land is sinking. There's also a lot of human uh, impact. Uh, these areas tend to be rich in natural resources like oil and gas. And in Louisiana, you know, estimates vary, but, but probably at least half of the loss that we've had is probably attributed to oil and gas activities. You see, when we drill for fossil fuels, we extract groundwater, thermal water, oil and gas from the subsurface, sometimes several kilometers deep. 
This leaves an open hole underground that eventually collapses from the weight of the soil and dirt above it. Basically, the ground gets smushed and Earth's surface starts to sink. And it's not just the oil and gas companies causing these problems. In big, metropolitan cities, the weight of the buildings can physically compress the ground, too. A study released in early May showed that New York City is sinking at the rate of about one to two millimeters a year. You can think of the Earth like a full bathtub. The water is our ocean, and the bathtub is our coast. Now add a bucket of water to the tub to account for ice melting, then lower the sides of the tub to factor in the land sinking. Do you get where I'm going with this? At the very least, some water splashes out of the tub. But in the worst case scenario, water comes pouring out of the tub and completely saturates the bathroom floor. Anything dry is now wet. It's a recipe for disaster. John says some excess water can be stored in soil, but you can only go so deep into the ground before it reaches a stopping point. And eventually, that water's gotta leave too. What we're seeing is flooding from just the natural drainage on land, river drainage basins, you know, every place on Earth have some way of facilitating rain that falls on the Earth and then draining eventually to the ocean. In the case of the flooding that occurred from Hurricane Katrina, and then again from Hurricane Rita, all of the water sitting on the highways or filling up houses eventually needed to make its way back to the ocean. While emergency responders started working on getting the water under control, John and other coastal scientists knew that Louisiana needed to be better prepared for its next major flood. So he and his team dove headfirst into building a game plan against water. So they formulated the multiple lines of defense strategy. The idea is basically to slow down and stop water from pouring into a big city. With this new plan, you'd have to make it through several layers of protection to breach, say, New Orleans. First, the water has to make it up an offshore shelf at the coast, then over a salt marsh, which is used as a barrier island, and then across a long brackish marsh. After that, the water must traverse a marshland bridge and a natural ridge. And this is where the natural lines of defense meet the man-made lines of defense. The sixth layer of water is just a big, wide highway. The water has to go up and over the road, which intentionally separates the salt water from the freshwater landscapes. From here, the water has to conquer a floodgate, some trees, a gigantic levee, and an extravagant pump system. All of that before it can get to a single elevated home or building. Part of the defense strategy, by the way, is to get as many homes and buildings elevated as possible. The last line of defense, the most important line, is a clear and safe evacuation route for locals to escape. I'm going to post a picture of this on our social channel so you can see how truly elaborate this is. As a scientist, I appreciate how the natural lines of defense are used to shield the man-made lines of defense, which are ultimately used to shield the citizens from water. The plan was too late for Hurricane Katrina, but some of it is being used today. It's been implemented as part of a protection levee system that is a 98-mile-long wall intended to protect Louisianans from Category 3 storms. Not all parts of Louisiana or the rest of the coast are getting this kind of protection, though. Sinking land and rising sea levels mean certain areas are a lost cause. The Isle de Jean Charles is one of them. Over the past 200 years, the land has slowly disappeared into the Gulf of Mexico, leaving only 320 acres remaining. 
That's a 98.5% loss of land. The inhabitants, the Biloxi Chittimacha Choctaw tribe, are adaptable though. When their land permanently flooded, they converted their hunting grounds into fishing areas, rebuilt their homes on stilts, and worked around the saltwater intrusion. But when that high tide hits, the only road connecting their island to the rest of Louisiana floods, and then they are trapped. The majority of the tribe has relocated 40 miles inland because they just can't handle it anymore. And their story remains a cautionary tale about the threats of climate change. But pushing a problem downstream doesn't make it go away. The group that often deals with the fallout is the United States Army Corps of Engineers, a group of nerds tasked with solving the most complicated public engineering systems across the country. They've engineered rivers, lakes, locks, and dams, and these days they're coming up with ideas for flood walls to protect our coast. They want to intentionally incorporate natural features like coral reefs or maritime forests inside the walls to fight climate change in addition to protecting communities from floods. These proposals for six to eight mile long walls are currently being debated in Congress across the country, but they have a big price tag, $1.1 billion in Charleston, $2.6 billion in Norfolk, and a whopping $119 billion in New York City, and an estimated time frame of 25 years. Is the big price tag worth it? Seattle says yes. Its 1.7-mile flood wall was built to withstand water of up to 38 feet. And in 2021, when a bad storm was a Bruin, city members worked around the clock to raise the wall even higher, to 41 feet tall. And then it was put to the test when they experienced their second worst flooding in decades. The Skagit River crested at 36.9 feet, but the city remained dry. Well, as dry as Seattle can ever be. If Congress decides to invest, it'll be a while before these long-term solutions are implemented. Right now, one of the big things we can rely on are spillways, which are structures that relocate a surplus of water in the case of an emergency. Most people were grateful to have them in May 2011, when the United States was collectively experiencing some of the worst flooding in a century. The Mississippi River was flooding all across the country. To minimize the loss of human life, Louisiana decided to intentionally reroute water to rural areas to protect Baton Rouge and New Orleans. To do this, they opened the Morganza Spillway for the first time in 37 years. It was supposed to get the flooding under control a week faster than other methods, which sounds like a good idea, right? Well, deliberately flooding 4,600 square miles of land had consequences to humans and animals downstream of the spillway. The Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries reported that 30% of the local deer drowned in the water, and most of the turkeys did not make it out in time. There were also problems for the marine life, which are used to salt water. We had a dolphin that were killed by fresh water. But if you have a lot of fresh water, now you're pushing fresh water into areas where you have maybe marine organisms that are going to die because they, they can't survive in fresh water. And we had some of that with some of the recent spillway openings where oysters were killed. John mentioned one other thing that made my ears perk up. Chemistry matters also, of course. Uh, the, the Mississippi River tends to be uh, overloaded with nutrients, uh, nitrogen and phosphorus. Uh-oh. I know where this is going. 
When molecules contain nitrogen and phosphorus get into the water, they can cause a dead zone to form. And a dead zone is exactly what it sounds like, an area where marine life die because there's not enough oxygen in the water. It's due to a process called eutrophication, which is quite complicated, but here are the cliff notes. When fertilizer drains into the ocean, the extra nutrients cause a huge plume of algae to bloom. The algae blocks the sunlight from entering the water, which kills the marine plants. Then eventually, the algae dies too, and when they decompose at the bottom of the ocean, the bacteria takes the oxygen from the water, that same oxygen that fish need to breathe. And anytime we have a flash flood, fertilizer can be pushed into local lakes and rivers, creating new temporary or depending on the location, permanent dead zones. After the disaster in 2013, when Louisiana opened the Morganza spillway, creating dead zones and killing animals, the state adapted their emergency plan. So in 2019, when they were forced to open the spillway again because of more catastrophic flooding, they decided to do a soft open. This time around, they opened the gates slowly and gave the animals enough time to escape. I mean, what would you do if the gates to a spillway opened and water just came rushing at you unexpectedly? And more importantly, are you prepared for flooding? How prepared am I for flooding? Not as prepared as I should be, honestly, (laughs) like considering I write about it all the time. Prepare for flooding? Actually, no. If it was a flood, I don't know what I would do. I mean, on a small scale, like, oh, your basement's flooding? Yeah, I guess I'm prepared for that. But the Missouri River jumping its banks and I'm prepared in that I would, you know, throw some stuff in the back of the car and leave. Not prepared enough. I don't have like one of those fancy water vacuums, you know. I haven't given too much thought into it. So, how can you prepare? For starters, if you are buying a house or real estate on the coast, Figure out where your closest spillways are located and make sure you are not in their path. Then pull up the NOAA Sea Level Rise viewer. It has layers of maps that show which coastal areas are most susceptible to sunny day flooding. Spend a few minutes on their website. It's better to be safe than sorry. And once you determine the best location for your new home, consider buying an elevated house and make sure to get flood insurance. Work with your neighbors and figure out where the hotspots are and then plan your evacuation route together. The truth is, climate change, something that we've exacerbated, is causing our sea levels to rise. And when that combines with tidal forces, strong winds, or changes in our ocean currents, we have flooding, and a lot of it. It doesn't matter if you live near the coast or in the middle of the United States, everyone is going to be affected by water. And while we wait for the solution, engineers at home and abroad are planning for the future. Here are some of my favorite examples. In Manchester, they're adding plants to the bare roofs of buildings. The hope is that these green roofs will absorb rainwater, and so far, it's working. They're retaining 34% more water than traditional paved roofs. In China, they're designing sponge cities that collect flood water for irrigation and plumbing. By waterproofing paved areas, the water easily drains through grass patches built into the concrete. Meanwhile, developers in the Maldives and Dubai are dreaming up luxury homes and hotels that let people sleep underwater in style. And if your plan is to live in a floating seahorse or a sea pod, which are adorable floating tiny homes, those exist now too. 
for a few million dollars. All of these things are incredibly innovative, but I, for one, am really looking forward to solutions like pipelines that pump water out of cities during storms or turning our drains into one-way passages where we force the water to always go from the roads to the oceans and never from the oceans to the roads. At this point, I'll take any harebrained idea that gives us a shot at preventing a world engulfed in water. Thanks for listening to Seeking a Scientist. If you liked it, please write a review or share it with a friend. It'll help us celebrate these badass scientists and get them that standing ovation they so deserve. Seeking a Scientist is a production of KCUR Studios in Kansas City, made possible with support from the Sowers Institute for Medical Research and designed help from PRX. It's hosted by me, Dr. Kate Bieberdorf, a.k.a. Kate the Chemist. You can follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Kate the Chemist or on Twitter at k 8 the chemist. This episode was produced by me, Byron Love, and Suzanne Hogan with mixing help from Paris Norvell. Mackenzie Martin is our editor, CJ Janavi is our digital editor, and special thanks to the staff at KCUR, Jean-Vievre Desmarteaux, and the Sowers Institute. Our original theme music is by The Coma Calling, and you heard music from Blondie, Lalo Schifrin, and Blue Dot Sessions. And clips from Waterworld, Evan Almighty, The Fifth Wave, San Andreas, Moonfall, Pineapple Express, The Day After Tomorrow, and TikTok user TR3NT0MN. Next time, we're looking at fungus. And one of my buddies is stopping by. Hi, Kate. Thanks for checking in. I'd be happy to offer a cosmic perspective on fungus. Yeah, that's astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. How much does fungus rule our world? Until then, if you want to see pictures of the water cycle or the multiple defense strategy, check out our Instagram at Seeking a Scientist or Twitter at Seeking a SciPod. You can also subscribe to our email list at seekingascientist.org. So I don't know if anybody told you, but this episode is inspired by the movie Waterworld. Is there any science in it that's like, oh, that's really wrong and it bothers you just from an oceanographer standpoint? The one movie that I did was like, oh, gosh, this is not the way sea level rise is going to play out. Was I think it was like the day after tomorrow or something. It was this huge wall of water. It was like like a tsunami. Like, oh, my gosh, that's terrifying. You think that's sea level rise? Let's just make sure folks realize that's not sea level rise. That's a tsunami or that's a lake, an alpine frozen water lake that busted and that had evidence of that long time ago. You know, that's not the way sea level rise is going to play out. I was not a consultant on that one. And they probably didn't want me to be a consultant on that one because it wouldn't have sold much many tickets. Exactly. You would have shut the entire movie down. So we can't have you on that one. Oh, it would have been so boring. People would be like, okay, I'm going to go get popcorn. I might even go home. Seeking a Scientist is made possible with support from the Stowers Institute for Medical Research, where scientists work to accelerate our understanding of human health and disease. More information about the Stowers Institute is online at stowersinstitute.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.